3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land which, from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, you're on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and www.3cr.org.au. Good morning, Apech. Good morning, Katya. How are you going this morning? Oh, going great, I think. <laughs> We're up, um, up so early again, but it's uh, always a happy, happy wake up, I think. Yeah. 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 It's um, it's a quiet morning for us to this morning. It's um, just the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be having a bit of a cruisy morning, playing some music. We've got some interviews later on um, with Alana Jeffries from Respect Queensland and Louise Sales is following up on GM Technology and Animals this week. Yeah. Looking forward to all those um, little talks we'll have and yes. learn some more things. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, and 3CR Digital, it's just on 7.09. And up next, we're going to hear from uh, Matt Kunkel on some union news. And we won't go back. And we won't stop the fight until we succeed in a pathway to job security and full-time employment. the fight until we get what we're entitled to and one extra week 
and you'll leave for being ship workers. West Australian bus drivers working for multinational transport company Transdev took strike action last Thursday. Drivers stopped work for four hours during the morning peak after negotiations for their enterprise agreement broke down. Their action had a strong impact, with many services cancelled across the network in Perth and Fremantle, and the effect was further amplified by the thickest morning fogs Perth had seen in some time. The West Australian drivers are demanding wage increases of 3% per year, a 1% increase to superannuation, and a fifth week of annual leave for all shift workers. These claims are similar to those of their Victorian counterparts, who have been taking or threatening strike action across the numerous contractors under Victoria's privatised model. The bus strikes in New Zealand also continue to spread, this time to Wellington, where drivers have set company transit a deadline of October 23 to accept their demands for a new agreement. The drivers are looking to overturn the drastic cut to wages and conditions when the company took over municipal bus routes. Some drivers report losing as much as $200 a week, and if the demands are not met, the drivers will commence an indefinite strike, the first in Wellington since the 1990s. The industrial climate at some of Australia's leading universities is heating up in the lead-up to student exams. The National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU, are set to take half-day strike action at the University of Canberra on Wednesday, 17th of October. The action will be the first industrial action at that university in more than a decade, as university management refused to address demands surrounding workload, job security and rights for casuals. Over at the University of Wollongong, union members took strike action on the 10th of October. The union there accused management of unlawful misrepresentations and intimidation, attempting to put additional administrative hurdles in the way of the workers taking strike. Hundreds of members across the university campus has defied the university's intimidation and took strike action in regional New South Wales and southwest Sydney. In Victoria, members at Monash University have voted to take strike action, with management there persisting in claims to slash conditions including Indigenous employment targets. Other management demands include cutting penalty rates and undermining job security. Also in Victoria, members at Victoria University have been voting on a strike ballot set to close just prior to the show's broadcast. Check out the NTEU's Facebook page for more updates. The Australian Council of Trade Unions has released a report demonstrating the shortcomings of the Consumer Price Index as a measure of how quickly the cost of living is rising. The CPI, as it is more commonly referred to, is a figure released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics which considers the increase in a cost of certain categories of goods and services. This basket of goods, as it is called, includes a mix of all types of household costs, including basic necessities like food, energy and housing, and services like healthcare, education and communication. But it also includes consumable goods and luxury items. The report found that while CPI suggests the cost of living is rising at a relatively low rate of 2%, there are important categories of goods and services that are increasing at much higher rates. These include electricity, housing, childcare and gas, all types of bills which working class families have little or no chance of avoiding. Electricity, for example, is rising at four times the current rate of wage growth and childcare at twice the rate of wages. When calculating the CPI, the Bureau of Statistics estimates that workers have roughly 40% of their wages left over to buy non-essential items and luxury goods. This is clearly not the circumstance in which most workers see themselves when their pay packets come in. Many employers also use the CPI during enterprise agreement negotiations as a measure of their wage offers. The ACTU report shows that a continued reliance on these economic figures will continue to see working class people struggle to make ends meet. The report concludes with a call to make changes to legislation that are designed to improve workers' ability to bargain and increase their wages, particularly the reintroduction of industry-wide and multi-employer bargaining.
Workers in Australia are set to take to the streets and demand changes to the industrial relations legislation. There are rallies planned in 16 different locations around the country, with the majority of those happening on Tuesday the 23rd of October. Several unions have called for stop work actions and significant turnouts are expected from the building industry unions. This comes despite pressure from both the Fair Work Ombudsman and the Australian Building and Construction Commission who have both sought to repress workers from exercising their rights to political expression. In Victoria, several contingents are expected to travel from the regions into the Melbourne CBD. If you're listening to the show in regional Victoria, contact your local Trades and Labor Council for more information. The time and date of all the rallies around the country can be found by heading to www.changetherules.org.au. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. The National Sustainable Living Festival is Australia's flagship sustainability event and applications are now open for the event in February 2019. To celebrate its 20 years... SLF is calling all changemakers, presenters, artists, performers and creatives to submit their applications for the biggest disruption yet. There's never been a more vital time to get involved in this important festival. Apply now. Go to slf.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR 855am. Um, just before we heard from Matt Kunkel from, um, oh, with some union news, and up next, Apeche, I think we're having an interview, a great interview that aired last Friday on In Your Face, so we're going to be revisiting that. Yeah, so good interview with Janet Jukes. Um, she was speaking um, with James, so I don't want to add more. We'll just leave it we'll and just let you listen. It's <laughs> I am joined by the very seasoned and experienced LGBTIQ activist, rights advocate, Janet Dukes. Welcome back to 3CR. It's been 20 years since I've interviewed you. 20 years. 20 years. That's way too long between drinks, isn't it? It really (laughs) is. Um, It's been a very, very busy 20 years for LGBTIQ activism. And this week's been busy with the leaked uh, report into Ruddick's religious freedom recommendations. Uh, And we've all been pretty shocked by talk of queer kids being thrown out of religious schools. What's your reaction to to the leaked report? Well, I think, you know, um, I mean, on one level, it's very confusing, isn't it? Because we hear this and we hear that and we're not quite really sure what's in it. So I I guess I'd join the Human Rights Law Centre in saying we need to see the report, you know, time for it to actually be available publicly. Um, But also, I think, you know, you'd be a bit of a fool if you didn't have an idea of what might be in there, given um, the fact that it was a response to the marriage equality debate this time last year. 
and uh, was really a concession, I think, to some of those elements in the Liberal Party that such a such an inquiry would happen and that Philip Ruddock would lead it up. So, you know, no surprises probably in the in the leaked um, um, leaked um, you know statements that they think are in there. Do you think it helps the LGBTIQ cause that actually has been leaked a couple of weeks out from the Wentworth by-election? And do you think that's perhaps stymied the right-wing rump of the coalition and it's meant that the Prime Minister's had to hose it down a bit to not frighten the horses? And in actual fact, um, that could well assist us to have it buried? Or do you think that we're just being lulled into a false sense of security and it's going to beef up after Wentworth? I I think that I think that probably the reason that it has been leaked has been a response to a, the political um, climate at the moment in the by-election and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of uh, you know what does that mean for us? It, you know the, I think it's exposed the divisions that exist in our community and particularly in that party. And <clears throat> excuse me. And I think it probably. Um, means that we need to, you know, it's a, it's a wake up call for us. We need to be, we need to be organised. We need to be informed and we need to be ready because, um, there are people who think this and some of them are, they are in parliament. You recently went along to the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby's Candidates Forum, mm. uh, where, you know, the, the, the queer community was being courted by candidates for the state election. Uh, what were the standout policies and by whom? I just want to say it's so wonderful that those forums still happen. I remember, you know, when mm. we set up the lobby of mine, I don't know, 25 years ago or something like that, or 20, maybe not quite that long, um, we used to run those forums and they still happen. And I think they're really, really important, those sort of town hall um, meetings where we get a chance to ask some questions from some pollies. I think we used to call it put a polly on the barbie. I'm not sure that you get away with that these days. Um, so, you know, all power to the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby to, who still, um, you know, entirely voluntarily um, pull those things together. And that was a great um, evening. The, I think the standout thing for me is um, that there's work, there's more work to do. You know, we've still got quite a lot of, we've got a lot of, uh, the law reform agenda is coming to an end. We've got, you know, we're really mopping up the law reform. There's still work to do and um, and uh, Lee and Anna from the Human Rights Law Centre have been running around the country, you know, mopping up all of those areas of law that we need to continue to work, and there's quite a lot of them. Um, but what we don't have is a funded uh, community sector that's stable, uh, LGBTI community-controlled sector. So we don't have mental health services properly funded in a sustainable way. Um, you know, Switchboard really runs on the smell of an oily rag. Thorn Harbour Health doesn't have the same level of resources that we really need to have in terms of our mental health supports, and we know that's a really big area of um, of need. There's a there's a whole lot of areas that we don't get recurrent, secure funding that we can build our community from, and and I think that's the big thing that came out in that in that forum. And it, you know, there was discussion around the Pride Centre and how the sustainability of the Pride Centre. Um, but I think across the board there was, you know, all of the parties acknowledged that we need to do more work there. Now we need to see their money. Exactly. Were there any funding commitments? Unfortunately, there were no commitments at all. And I guess it's too soon. You know, we, we're, we're not quite in caretaker mode and we're not quite in election. I mean, it started, we're inching towards it and we're starting to see announcements. But um, all of the parties, um, the major parties, were very, very clear they weren't going to make any funding commitments or any election promises at all. But um, we'll, we'll wait in hope. Who were some of the candidates that attended? 
Um, so they were Martin Foley, who's the Minister for Equality, um, and David Davis, who's the opposition um, um, counterpart. Um, and then we had uh, Greens and um, and uh, the uh, the Reason Party, the Reason Party, who were who were there as well. And then in the audience were some of the local um, local. Um, candidates for Paran and for the you know, local areas. So how did the rights lobby assess the, I guess, not commitments, but, you know, like responses from the various political parties? Did they rank them in any way? Did they release a report saying this party's really good in this area, it's shithouse in another? Well, I'm not involved in the actual no. organisation of it, so um, or even on the committee of the lobby. I'm, I'm a life member, but I'm not um, involved in the organisation of it anymore. Um, but I understand that they've got a number of questions. There's a there was an election um, platform or um, a policy document that was produced in conjunction with a whole lot of LGBTI community-controlled organisations, including Thorn Harbour Health and Switchboard and Human Rights Law Centre, and a whole lot of organisations got together and um, put the put the, their um, policy positions together and um, that document was launched uh, at, that, um, at that event and that will now um, be seeking some responses from each of the um, major parties and invite them to... And I think the lobby's plan is to put out some statements assessing how well each of those um, parties will you know, go against those um, policy wish lists. You mentioned funding gaps before. One of the biggest funding gaps, I think, is around gender diversity in trans right. community services. You mentioned mental health as well. I imagine there's yeah. a real kind of, you know, lack of mental health funding uh, for trans and gender diverse people. And um, young people, of course. So yeah. you know, even, even um, strategies to prevent bullying, you know, suicide prevention, um, really working with affirming um, young trans and gender diverse young people to um, be who they want to be in the world and be as be the best person of people that they can be. So, I think um, you know we need we need a lot more resources to run really good programs and and keep that community um, you know agenda happening. How did uh, David Davis, the coalition spokesperson at Candidates Forum, actually handle the issue? And really navigated in terms of safe schools and the coalition's policy to basically destroy it. <laughs> well, I think you know, I think it's it's a it's an evolving space, isn't it? Really, for the um, for the um, the opposition, and I think a bit like the federal um, Liberal Party, there are you know a number of different views, and I've got to say that I think David Davis is. Um, one of our friends in that community. Um, and so he does speak from his heart in relation to supporting our community, and he's shown that support uh, when he has been minister. Um, that may not be the view of the whole of the government, um, should it change and become a Liberal-led um, government. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that he sidestepped. But I think more interesting in that forum for me was the discussion around the attempts to move the, remove the religious exemptions in the Equal Opportunity Act. And the, the government has put up, um, a num has tried a number of times to remove religious exemptions, as had the Greens, and have been unsuccessful because it's been blocked in the upper house. Because Victoria is one of the states that's being mentioned this week, that's aren't right. we? You know that you know why do you need to make these changes to federal law when you've got states like Victoria that already have these exemptions for religious organisations? And they're really abhorrent. You know, the, it's the, so at, currently in the Equal Opportunity Act, um, religious bodies can. 
um, discriminate on the basis of sexuality and gender identity, um, and they can um, and and that's lawful lawful discrimination. They can be exempted from um, employing people or delivering goods and services. And you know, it's in the 21st century. It's not acceptable, and they and they have to be removed. It's a policy position of one major party, all of the major parties except the Liberals, I might just say quietly, um, to remove those exemptions. Um, there's different disagreements between the Greens and the Labor Party about how to do that, but it is a policy position um, to do that. And what we need is a government that um, that has the power in both the lower and the upper house to be able to remove those religious exemptions from the Equal Opportunity Act. They've got to go because they meet that. what they do is they stop... Um, people from feeling like they can engage with religious organisations or um, seek supports that are delivered through religious organisations. And when you've got most homelessness services, most child welfare services, um, most you know many hospitals, lots of aged care um, facilities run by uh, organisations that have their origins in uh, faith-based organisations, it's no longer acceptable. Um, that those exemptions are available to those organisations, even if they never use them, and many of them are pledging never to use them, mm. they can. I guess the stumbling block and the difficulty for, for us having those exemptions removed is the state of the upper house here in Victoria and its coalition domination. In the in the current parliament, that's what it's that's what that's what stopped it. Mm. Um, and so you know we you needed we need a decisive win for um, more the more progressive side of of um, of um, government to to um, remove those exemptions but that's a, that has to remain a priority and the um, pushback that we've seen since the marriage equality debate and and the fed, you know the shenanigans federally this week um, make it even more stark I think that we we need to stay very focused in Victoria and have those religious exemptions removed was there any talk at the candidates forum about hate crimes towards the LGBTI community? I, I, I don't, I don't, aside from the religious exemptions, and I mean, the, each of the candidates were really supportive, I think, generally. I mean, as you would expect, they wouldn't turn up unless they were generally supportive of the um, LGBT community. Um, um, but the, each of the candidates, aside from um, the Reason Party, are, are mostly, you know, um, part of a party. So even the Greens are part of a party and they have to be taking a party position. So whilst you can have really really supportive people sitting on the podium. Um, sitting behind them is a party that takes a policy position. And we need to, as a community, really inform ourselves about each of those um, policy positions and, um, and, and cast our vote accordingly because there is a big difference. There's a big difference when it comes to our social issues around supporting trans and gender diverse and um, same-sex attracted young people in schools. There's a big difference when we're talking about whether or not um, religious exemptions are going to be removed so that people can't get sacked and everybody can access the services that they need. Um, the Human Rights Law Centre recently released a report about, about hate crimes mm. in Victoria. Um, what were some of the key issues and recommendations in it? Well, I had a look at it because I knew you were going to ask me that question. So, <laughs> um, so I pulled it back out because I went to the launch. And it's like, I've just got to say it's a really... I saw you tweet about it, actually. Yes, it's a really... It was really good to be at the um, launch. And, um, the, and the good thing about um, that is that it's, there, were, there was a strong pre, um, presence of um, Victoria Police. And I've got to say, 20 years ago, we would never have no. had that back in the um, tasty days. Um, but um, so there was a good um, presence of Victoria Police who were really, really supportive about how they could 
do better around responding to hate crime when it happened because we know during the marriage equality debate a number of people experienced, um, you know, sometimes really violent but also really disturbing um, examples of hate crime, whether it was, you know, vandalism or things getting um or graffiti, as we've recently graffiti seen. Or, um, or, you know, posters being posted around the place which were just intimidating or, with, or actually people being physically harmed and set upon. Um, all of those things happen and happen, continue to happen. Um, and uh, during that time, there were a lot of people who reported that they got a really inadequate response from the police. And, and I think the police have acknowledged that and they certainly acknowledged it at this launch. So that's a standout for me. I think that's great that that relationship's continuing in there that they're aware that, you know, we need to lift our, lift our game so that people will report hate crime and that they'll be taken seriously and the harm that we know happens as a result of that hate crime will be taken seriously as well. So I guess in terms of election commitments or announcements during the campaign once the writs are issued uh, in early November for the election, perhaps we're going to see a commitment around introducing hate crimes legislation from one of the major parties uh, if they're elected or... It's certainly a, it's a recommendation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whether or not we'll actually see it, you know, James, your guess is as good as mine. Um, but um, but certainly there's a um, it was a recommendation of the Human Rights Law Centre's report. And I, I think the other thing is, and there were lots of recommendations around community campaigns so that people understand hate crime, they understand the impact of hate crime. There's recommendations around improving our data. Um, there's recommendations around police lifting their game, and um, and I think the police were very open to those recommendations. So there's a whole swag of recommendations, but it's a report worth reading for those who are interested in this issue. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birurungma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. On 20th of October, come enjoy and experience traditional parapen, underground cooking from West Papua. Fundraising for Black Orchid Stream Band with music, food and movie. Held in Brunswick East, cooking will start at 5pm. Pre-booking ticket only. 20 for adult, 14 for children, kicks under 5 is free. Find the event on Black Hockey Stream Band Facebook page. Book through Tri Booking. 
See you there at 20 of October. Black Orchid Stream Band. Proud 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and www.3cr.org.au. Patch, what was that amazing song we were just listening to? We were listening to Yoga by Janelle Monet. It was great. Yeah. Yes. Got me like dancing on my seat over yeah, here. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're having a little dance party. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to head to a quick um, alternative news break. So an article was released in The Guardian just this morning called Disadvantaged Job Seekers Face Tough, Tough Odds Finding Work, um, article by Luke Henricks Gomez. And it looks at a new report that's come from Anglicare about job seekers and uh, disadvantaged and entry-level positions and the um, rate at which uh, low-entry jobs are just unavailable for job seekers in general. Uh, But I had an interesting statistic that for every entry-level job, there were 4.26 people applying for that job that had significant barriers to employment Mm. compared with skilled workers. So significant barriers um, could be housing issues, domestic violence, any kind of structural disadvantage. Um, And that's quite, uh, I guess, an alarming figure. It is. That means we're leaving out at least, what, three people? Out of each job and everything, and yeah. um, here we are trying to argue or what we hear from um, um, official institutions and everything. Oh, you know, there's so many jobs in the economy and people are doing well, which is why we're not going to raise the new start um, level and everything. But um, just from this, if these statistics um, we're going to hold them true, then yeah, we do have a problem here that's not being addressed at mm-hmm. all. Um, yeah. Yeah, and definitely, and um, you just mentioned Centrelink there, and one of the calls that's coming out of agencies is that if there are so few jobs, particularly entry-level jobs, so we're talking about um, sales, labour, food prep, cleaning, if we're looking uh, at the rate or the low levels of entry-level jobs that are available, then there's a definite need to raise the new start allowance. Exactly, and even even so, like those are some... Entry level jobs or low level, like oftentimes even the salary from that is not, is not enough to sustain normal standard of living. Um, most of the time you find people having to ration or in some way, um, still, um, live in a difficult, um, um, difficult, um, conditions yeah. and everything. So, um, even if we say, oh, now we have full 100% employment, it's, it's not the same. Um, have people working casual or part-time or minimum wage or um, things like that. So it um, keeps getting worse and something that yeah, definitely needs to be addressed. So mm. continue pushing for that. Definitely. And you were talking about even people that are in employment or underemployed. And this report shows that there's a 714,500 people were unemployed as of May, but there were another one, almost 1.1 million that were underemployed. So yeah. looking for extra work to supplement their current income. Yeah, well, we know in recent years, if um look even about some figures um, released by several government agencies, um, so we know that the price level or inflation has just been going so far and a lot lot higher than the wages. Um, mm. Wage increase is pretty much frozen um, at the moment. So um, if you see the price, um, 
the price of living increasing constantly like that and wages are not reflecting that in their increases, of course you'll have some people left behind. And this again um, leads me to another point where you see more... Um, more people who would have been thought to be middle class no longer ago are now sort of sinking, sinking, sinking more because now, like, prices are going up for everything, yeah. but what the amount of money you're getting paid at working is not going up. So, of course, everyone will end up with having less. So, yeah, it's um, stretching more and it's opening that gap mm. um, of inequality. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's all connected somehow. So we need to just stop the bleeding. Mm. And yes, and there is a big campaign going on at the moment, um, pushed by the unions called Change the Rules, which is also looking at, um, raising the minimum wage and making, um, you know, so that we can meet our, our living costs as well. Yeah, it's, um, I think these rules are just current rules. If you were to say in society's, society's rules are in the way of jobs, yeah, I would say they're rigged. So let's yeah. be controversial. It is rigged. <laughs> yes. It's rigged. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. It's absolutely rigged. Um, it's not, these, these rules and some of them, they're not, not so much made to, um, favor those people looking for jobs or those people who are entry, entry level, um, positions and everything. So yeah, definitely, um, hope we succeed through the unions getting these, um, rules looked at and maybe we can get them changed, um, yeah. to, yeah. Or someone can feel a bit more equal. Yes. Join your union. Yes. Join your union. <laughs> Join your union, yes. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. It's just on 7.45. Up next, we're going to be speaking with Eleanor Jeffries, the State Coordinator of Respect Queensland. And we're going to be talking about a case of in August of this year where a man pled guilty at the Brisbane Magistrates Court for two counts of fraud for conning sex workers out of payment. Usually this would result in a possible conviction for rape. Um, and just this is just a small content warning. Um, we're not going to be going into too much detail about these uh, the effects of these issues on sex workers, but we will be discussing laws surrounding fraud and rape of sex workers. Um, so to speak with us, we have Eleanor Jeffries. Welcome, how Eleanor. How are you going? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm very good on this historic morning of the abortion law reform changes here in Queensland. We I had the vote last night I in know. Parliament. Congratulations. Massive, yeah. yeah. It's really massive. Yes, yes, yes. It's really great news. So It is. And uh, a couple of the Liberals even crossed the floor to vote in favour of the legislation. Former leader of the Liberals, Tim Nichols, and Steve Minikin as well. So, yeah, it was a, it was a showing of support for the great feminist campaigning that's been going on up here for a really long time. Yeah. Fantastic. It's encouraging. Yeah, it's really mm. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, sex work will be next. Yes. <laughs> sex work next. <laughs> well, that's actually a good point to lead into. I was actually going to mm, ask. So mm. what are the current legal frameworks uh, affecting sex workers in Queensland at the moment? Look, the, there is still a broad-scale charges, arrest and criminalisation of sex work across Queensland despite uh, the, the Peter Beattie government bringing in a licensing model in 1999, um, it was 
a whole decade earlier that the Fitzgerald inquiry happened and found high levels of police corruption in relation to the sex industry and had recommended that police be removed as regulators of sex work. Um, the licensing model intended to do that but didn't. Well, it, it hasn't happened. So police are still heavily involved in regulating the sex industry in Queensland. Um, there are dozens of charges against sex workers uh, for um, advertising infringements each year. Um, so police actually regulate what sex workers can and can't say in our advertising and, and do charge and fine people accordingly. Police in Queensland are also empowered to entrap us so they can pose as clients in order to, um, you know, make bookings or invite sex workers to do things but, and say that we're going to do things over the phone that are outside of the law mm. um, and then charge us that way as well. Um, so, yeah, look, licensing <laughs> has been a complete failure here in Queensland. We've only got 20 legal brothels. I'm based up here in Townsville. We don't have a legal brothel at all, and yet private workers are also subject, subjected to this um, police entrapment behaviour um, yeah, which is really frightening. Basically. Mm. So yeah. it's only it's only legalised through licensed brothels. So there's no. So you can be entrapped if you're doing your own private work. Well, private se- private sex work is um, meant to be done completely alone, or if you have any support staff, there's a lot of um, restrictions applied. So let's say I am having a booking this afternoon. I want to text my friend who's a sex worker who works down the street, the client's name when they're arriving, and and then when they leave, text them and say, yeah, the booking's over, you know, do you want to catch up or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all of that form of communication and support between private sex workers is illegal in Queensland. Um, If I was to implement a safety strategy like getting my partner to drop me off, drive me to a booking um, and wait for me while I'm at a booking. That's illegal as well. My partner would need a special um, licence in order to be able to do that. Um, so many common safety strategies that sex workers you know, all over the world use are criminalised here as part of the licensing model. Um, police, are the regulators and implement those, um, those, you know, those boundaries against private workers. So, yeah, it's pretty intense and the policing action is quite proactive up here. And respect the organisation that you work for uh, is, I'm guessing, advocates for a decriminalisation model, as you said before, that decriminalisation yeah. is next. So can you explain Respect's position on um, changing these laws? Yeah, so... Um, we believe that the recommendations from the Fitzgerald inquiry in 1989 should be followed through. Uh, police should be removed um, as having any regulatory or prosecution role within sex work. Um, we believe that sex work should be covered by existing laws that other um, workplaces, small businesses um, are covered by and but the big the big thing is the removing of police. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, there's um, three big there's you know poli- the Police Powers and Responsibilities Act 
2000 allows the police to come and entrap us. We've got the um, Prostitution Act of 1999, which set up the licensing model and, and um, effectively put police as regulators of our advertising. That needs to be repealed as well. Um, and then Section 22A of the Criminal Code in Queensland is also all about policing and criminalising um, our safety strategies, our basic safety strategies, and that needs to be repealed as well. So they're the, they're the um, things that respect is fighting for, and not just respect, but sex workers across mm-hmm. the state. So we have a... Um, we have a campaign going on that involves sex workers from all over Queensland, lots of rural and regional workers, touring workers, you know, people of all genders, people of different ages and um, different backgrounds and different language backgrounds. So it's quite diverse. And the role of Respect as the sex worker organisation is to support that campaign and and be, be um, led effectively by what that group of sex, active sex workers are saying. Fantastic. And because I guess also what is coming out of sex worker peer organisations is Mm -hmm. that um, actually we have enough laws already that already regulate businesses and we also have criminal acts that um, already, you know, set in the the legal framework for what happens when something goes wrong. So we actually don't need extra regulation on top of regulation because we're covered already. Yeah, we are covered and also, more to the point, while sex workers in Queensland are criminalised, we are actually being prevented from accessing just basic, um, basic civil, basic civil protection that other people would be using. So, um, let's say, for example, I am working from home. Uh, Really, actually, if I'm working from home, it's a local council and amenity impact issue. However, in Queensland, because private sex work is so heavily regulated by the police, it is actually the police who are standing between me and the local council from being able to access my civil, um, you know, my, my civil rights as a person who lives in a local council area and should be covered by council, not police. Mm. So, yeah, so there's a lot going on. That needs to change up here. Um, but I think, um, look, there's been a recent case in the courts up here that you mentioned already. Yeah, case. just thought about and that we should turn to that now. So on the other yeah. end, so it's we've just been talking about laws affecting sex workers and their work, but now on the other end there's new laws that affect what happens when sex workers are conned uh, by clients. Oh, there's not new laws. Oh, not, about, oh it's not new laws, yeah, but the it's laws. Not new of, laws, but it's the first time we've had yeah. a successful um, fraud case against a, uh, a man in Queensland in this manner. Yeah. Finally enforcing it. Yeah, and you know what this case shows? Well, the police took the issue seriously, mm-hmm. and the courts treated the issue with um, with respect mm-hmm. as well. The two sex workers involved had knew they were running the risk of having to be outed with their real name and identity within the courts, um, and they they made that decision that they would take that risk when they decided to bring the case. However, the courts treated the case with a lot of sensitivity, and neither worker was outed in the end, um, which oh, is amazing. That's really good, yeah. So look. It was a really good outcome and it showed that when police and the justice system do put their mind to um, sex worker 
safety, it can happen mm. in a straightforward and um, respectful way. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's completely not the norm. Mm. So of the of that that man who um, defrauded those two workers, he had actually done that to threat to five workers in total, um, and probably more, just only mm. five five that we know of. But out of the five workers, only the two were able to step forward and run that risk of um, having a confidentiality breached. Um, the other three workers, um, uh, due to their own personal circumstance, and so many things to do with discrimination and stigma and the law in Queensland, decided that they couldn't pursue it. Mm. So, you know, it's not good, it's not good odds. We've got more people than not withholding information and not coming forward about crime because um, they're, they're fearful. Yeah. yeah. And just to clarify, Eleanor, for listeners, so so traditionally when a client um, in the past had conned a sex worker, so and when we say con, we should say that they had engaged a sex worker for services and then not paid, essentially, at the Correct. end. Yeah. Um, yeah. That in the past has been treated as... Um, has been treated as rape, is that right? But this is the oh. kind of complication around this issue now where sex workers are coming out and saying, well, there's consent issues, but also yes. it's about not paying for services, so it's fraud yeah. too. So can you speak a little bit about the intersection of those two things? Yeah. So in Australia, sex work laws are determined on state and territory level. Yep. And each... Um, so if I was to go... Or as these women did to a police station and report a crime, the police um, at that local level are interpreting and using the state law to decide how to prosecute that crime. Mm. So in the other examples that you're thinking of where non-payment by a client was treated by, as rape, that was um, in jurisdictions where sex work is more clearly recognised uh, as work. Okay, so that's not necessarily what was happening in Queensland. It, there has never been... This is the first case of this kind to be brought in Queensland oh, okay. yep. of, any, of any intended outcome, it, whether it be rape or fraud um, charge. Okay. Yeah? Yep. So um, this case is important. And, look, the sex workers involved... Um, I mean, just, just speaking from my own personal position as a sex worker now, I do think that, I do think that the laws and attitude around policing in Queensland, um, would have had a cultural impact on how the police decided to go forward with the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to measure these things because people are saying, oh, it should have been this, it should have been that. Like, well, for starters, uh, it shouldn't be so difficult to come forward and report crime. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the specific details of how the police decided to prosecute it are really a reflection on policing attitudes. They're not a reflection on social attitudes necessarily. Mm. So um, hopefully, in the future, in Queensland, we'll be seeing, um, I guess you know, in, with this as a precedent, sex work being taken more seriously by the courts? Yeah, look, by... you, would hope, you would hope so. Um, it has shown, it shows that it can be done. Um, but during that time, so during the um, 
you know, in 2018 so far, we've had these two women able to come forward and prosecute a successful case, and there is another case in the works that's similar that's going on at the moment. Um, during that time, there have been 13 other sex workers who have come forward to respect to report that they have gone into police stations to um, talk to police about crimes that have happened against them, whether it be theft or assault or rape, um, and have been turned away or threatened with arrest. Mm. So it's not only the issue of sex workers being afraid to come forward and report crime, it's also the case that attitudes in policing is police just don't take it seriously and don't want to follow it up. Mm. So um, it is really great that these two women uh, had success in their fraud case. Um, And it's it's against a backdrop of a lot of difficulties up here at the moment, which is why the campaign to change the laws and decriminalise sex work is so important. Fantastic. So we're just out of time. So before we go, Eleanor, would you like to point people in the direction if, if they'd like to learn more? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, um, definitely check out the campaign on Twitter. It's um, DecrimQLD is our hashtag. We are very happy and riding high on the, um, the last night's vote on the abortion laws. It's a good indication that the Queensland Parliament is uh, yeah, is ready to embrace some some good feminist law reform yes. <laughs> for sex workers as well now as well. So yeah, so check us out on Twitter. Um, we are Respect QLD, and our campaign is Decrim QLD. Fantastic! Thanks so much, Eleanor, for joining us today. Wonderful. Have a great day. You too. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and www.3cr.org.au. It's just on 8.02. Last week at the Legislative and Governance Forum on Gene Technology, state ministers rejected the federal government's proposal to deregulate genetic modification techniques. Uh, We spoke last Thursday with Louise Sales about the risks associated with gene technology and we have her back on the show today uh, to provide us with an update on what passed at the forum and where to from here for GM practices in Australia. And Louise Sales is the coordinator of Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project. Welcome back, Louise. Thanks so much for having me back on. It's lovely to have you. So can you give us an update on what happened last week at the forum? So basically... 
Yeah, last last week the um, federal government asked the states to sign off on changes to our gene technology regulations, which would basically leave a range of new genetic engineering techniques unregulated. Um, So these are techniques such as CRISPR, which some people might have heard of that the industry is referring to as gene editing. Um, They're basically arguing that these techniques only make small, precise changes to the genome and therefore don't pose any greater risk than traditional breeding um, and so don't need to be regulated. But actually the science is is showing something really quite different and and showing that all of these techniques pose risks that need to be assessed. Um, And more importantly, um, these techniques need to be labelled so that that we can avoid them if we want in our food. And the forum, so state ministers came out and rejected um, GM technologies, is that right? And said that more well, research they said that they need. They said that they need to to look at it. So they're actually, um, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. Um, they're going to reconvene in a few months' time and 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 try to make a decision. Then they said that they didn't have enough enough information to to make a decision really. Um, and a number of the states were concerned about the potential market impacts if they deregulate these techniques. Because of course, if they deregulate them, there'll be no requirement for safety testing, no requirement for traceability and labelling. And a number of the, the countries that we export to, like Europe, um, for example, there was a the court decision in, in July which basically ruled that these techniques pose the same risks as older GM techniques and need to be assessed for safety in the same way. So it's lo- looking like Europe's going to regulate these techniques, which obviously poses yeah major um, market risks for Australia if, they're gonna, if we're going to deregulate these techniques. And who will be the if they were to be regulated here? So who would be doing the research around um, what is required for regulation here? Yeah, well, that's that's a problem with um, GM regulation in Australia and also globally is that we're relying on on companies such as Monsanto with an appalling um, who have now been absorbed by Bayer, who have also got an appalling track record when it comes to covering up evidence of harm posed by their products. Um, so that yeah. W- our GM regulation, regulatory regime is by, is by no means um, ideal, but what they're proposing here is not regulating at all, which is even more concerning. Mm. So what will be your role with Friends of the Earth in the upcoming months in the lead-up to when the next forum is held? Well, yeah, I mean, we're going to continue putting pressure on the, the federal government and the states, but we're also trying to get this issue into the mainstream media. It's fantastic that, that you're having me on the program, but our attempts to get mainstream media coverage on this so far have been really unsuccessful. Um, I don't know whether it's too technical for them or... And I think partly it's because we've got organisations like CSRO um, who've actually got a huge conflict of interest in this area. They've got patents on these techniques and they're wanting to commercialise them. But they're saying, oh, it's all fine, there's nothing to see here. And yet they've got serious conflicts of interest um, because they're trying to commercialise these techniques. So... It's, yeah, it's a real problem as far as trying to communicate the risks posed by these techniques. Mm. And even when researching the, this issue online, I found that last week's forum wasn't really covered by anyone. As you were saying in the mainstream media, it doesn't really make it in. Um, and, it's, and it's such an important issue, and yet there's actually not a lot of information out there about what our regulatory status is or what news outlets are covering. That's right. Yeah, and they have they did actually go out for public consultation on 
on these techniques, but it was called a technical review of the gene technology regulation. And we would argue that our gene technology regulator made no attempt at all to actually make its discussion paper legible to anyone that doesn't have a have a biology degree. Um, so, I mean, poll, polling shows that the vast majority of Australians think all that the old GM food should be labelled. And obviously, these techniques are deregulated. They're going to be entering the food chain. Um, so this is what they're wanting to deregulate. It's, it's not just plants. It's also animals and microbes as well. And so ingredients from from these organisms could be entering our environment and our food chain with no safety testing and no labeling, which to us is just incredible, frankly. Mm. And how would, so how would these, um, I guess, foods and also animals be entering? So would it be that large companies, I mentioned, you mentioned Monsanto would be doing this and then, I guess, approaching farmers to start using or breeding certain kinds of animals? I mean, how does this actually enter into the Australian farming industry? Yeah, so there's there's been a few. There's a company um, in the U.S. called Recombinetics that's been using these techniques in animals. So, for example, they're they're trying to develop pigs that are resistant to to pneumonia and and diseases like that. Um, and we would argue, I mean, basically they're arguing that there's an animal welfare um, boon here. But we would we would argue that you really shouldn't be housing pigs in conditions intensive conditions where they're going to get sick and a better solution rather than genetically engineering animals so they don't get sick is not to house them in those inhumane conditions in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, thank you so much, Louise, for your time. Uh, Do you have any... So I guess there's a few months now for people to kind of get on this and push their state members. So have you got some uh, information or advice for our listeners and where to go and how to campaign... Yeah, so we, Jill Hennessy's the, the minister. She's the health minister in Victoria. And so far she's taken a good stance on this. They, they, the Victorian government actually, yeah, voted, voted against the deregulation of these techniques. But obviously, like the, the GM crop industry, so the lobby group Prop Life and, and their members, I know, I'm sure will be gearing up their lobbying efforts. So I'd really urge people to get, yeah, get in touch with, your local member and also Jill Hennessy, the, the state minister. We've actually got an um, online tool on our website, which is emergingtech.fo.org.au, if people want to jump up on news that to contact the minister. And there's a great report on there as well um, for listeners to read that explain further about these technologies because, as you said before, I think people can feel that it's sort of uh, out of their depth in terms of the science that needs to be understood, but you've got a report up there that explains a bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we just released a report on on GM GM animals and yeah, what what these what it would mean if these techniques are deregulated. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Louise, for coming on Thursday breakfast again to update us about what's going on. And I will keep in touch over the coming months to find out what happens um, in the future with the next forum. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Five, four. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. you got to remember, Nanop's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, 
Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's um, about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy and you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. Twenty eighteen marks twenty years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjate Me Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR 855am. It's 8.17. So in our conversation with Eleanor Jeffries before, some very good news was spoken about um, some some law or a law that was passed last night in Brisbane. Abortion was legalised, sorry, last night in Queensland. Um, It was, the vote was 51 to 41. Uh, and so there's some great news. So uh, there was women that were standing up in the benches cheering and hugging and crying. It sounds like it was beautiful. And so now women uh, can request uh, an abortion up to 22 weeks. Um, after 22 weeks, they need to seek consent from two doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there's a doctor uh, conscientiously objects, that doctor needs to refer the person to a doctor that will perform the procedure or consent. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really fantastic news. And um, also they have similar laws. I bet you're just about to jump in, but they have uh, similar laws to here in Victoria that were passed um, that were really pushed by Fiona Patton here in Victoria where now they will also be um, making a 150-metre safe zone around abortion clinics so women and other people also that are pregnant uh, do not experience harassment. Yes, uh, great news great indeed. News. <laughs> and this country I'm very well explained there. Um, I, I think it's about time. We won't say it's, um, it's late. We'll just be happy that it's it happened. has happened. It's and, fantastic. Um, for it to happen since last night. So um, that's good. And also just good to see how happy the people in the parliament were um, for it to be received like that and for it to pass what with 51 votes yeah it's really fantastic that's good um yeah so i I don't know makes me feel good that we're no longer trying to block things just because we can and um maybe we'll mark this as political progress (laughs) (laughs) of trying to do the right thing we won't get too excited but we'll say look okay we're we're taking um, we're taking positive steps, albeit little steps, but this one here was a big one. Yes, yes. and and I think that um, it's nice when 
politicians can, I guess, put their need for power and politics and aside and recognise that um, people, women and other people that experience pregnancy, because we know that it's not always women that are pregnant, definitely um, non-binary and trans people can also have experienced pregnancy, so that uh, it's really um, important that those people have agency over their own bodies and their own futures and that um, it's amazing that we can actually allow people to then take control and make really important decisions that are about their own reproductive futures. It's a really amazing achievement. And Apech, you said before that it's a long time coming, but we won't say that, we'll just celebrate. But it is a long time coming. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's 2018 and women are still, and women and people are still fighting for control over their bodies. <laughs> I was trying not to be negative, trying to look but, here that we are, we are making progress albeit late progress yes. it, it is and it, is. it shouldn't it should not have been this hard and um you made some pretty good points there that we need um politicians who act um to do the right thing and not just what is political uh, politically expedient um so yeah in, in that respect maybe we should say hey we need politicians to revert back to actually being leaders rather than just playing the politics game mm-hmm. um and everything so um yeah, so another good point um, <laughs> that you made. Oh my god, I got a bl- brain, a brain thing. Yeah, we're, we're, we're both having, having, we're having this kind of this morning, morning. This this kind of um morning today. But um, you made a good point around um agency and the ability, and that's the most important thing that we've have we've been having with all these debates that are going on in Parliament. It seems to be lost um on a lot of our politicians the importance of um someone having the ability to choose, make the choice about their own body, their own destiny, and things like that. And this is exactly what this bill being passed um, demonstrates that, hey, look, we are now recognizing and we accept that, you know, everyone has the right to choose um, Mm. what they'd like to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially in putting 150-metre safe zones around abortion clinics, we're not just saying that everyone has the right to choose, but that we will protect people's rights and that sometimes um, the right of freedom of speech needs to be balanced with the rights of people to determine their own reproductive futures and their own agency. Um, And so that's a really, I think it's really important that when we legalise abortion, we also put in uh, safety measures for people to actually access it because it's one thing to legalise it, it's another thing to... um, create safe access exactly and it's it's a medical thing and uh, it is something in our society that um in some ways um given how we are in some capacity affected by religion there's some way um carries some shame or some stigma with it so also this could be a question of privacy as well um Mm. in the way of protecting um people visiting clinics so yeah What sort of kid stuff? All sorts of kid stuff. I'm Carl Panuzzo. 
And I'm Daniel Salvatore Christopher Larkin Spinoza. And we are... Playing the platters that matter. Spinning the discs with a twist. Talking the job that will keep you alive. To, to make, make sure, sure you really, really exist. Every Thursday... From 3.30 till 4. Right here on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. We have giveaways in question time. We'll need you to SMS your favourite line. So tune in to find out what's going on in our world. I'm Dinah, surprise, surprise. And you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Time is just on 8.25 in the morning. Um, uh, if you were just joining us, um, the track we listened to before was Stay by Satsuma. Uh, Great track. Yes. It's, it's very mellow, isn't it's it? It's very mellow. Yeah. Suiting our morning very well. It is. We've been uh, going with some good music today. I don't know. We have. We have the touch today, <laughs> this morning. <laughs> um, no, just, just quickly before we um, move into... The next thing, I'd just like to bring attention to all our beautiful listeners. Um, we have a 3CR fundraiser. <laughs> uh, it's a, a film fundraiser. It will be cinemas and IMAX. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, come along to the Bohemian Rhapsody fundraiser, a film about Freddie Mercury and his band Queen. It will be on Thursday, the 8th of November, 6.30 p.m. It'll be at the Palace Westgarth in Cinemas, 89 High Street. And it'll be $25 full and $20 for concession. Um, you can purchase the tickets online from 3cr.org.au or direct from the station. Um, we're located in 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or alternatively, you can find 03-9419-8377. Um, all funds go towards keeping 3CR the champions on air and so if you want to keep listening to these beautiful people here yeah you know what to do come and join us for a bit of fun and fundraiser i bet you're always wonderful at talking about our community service announcements and informing people what's going on i love it yeah we've also got another one for you so actually this relates to what we were talking before about uh in alternative news about job seekers um and uh, workers' rights and um, new start. So every Australian deserves a decent living wage, no matter what job we do or the colour of our skin. So Australia needs a pay rise rally, which will be on Tuesday the 23rd of October at 10.30am, meet at Victorian Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Parade. And that's so we can demand better wages to meet our cost of living. Exactly. So, Apache, we're nearing the end of the show. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> it was a great show. We played some really good music today. I think so. We have the touch today with the music. Yeah, and listeners can find out more about um, what we played today on our um, on our web page. So, if you go to the 3cr.org.au website, you can go to the Thursday Breakfast web page and look at every week we have our podcasts up there um, we also put up what we played each week songs and interviews so if you want any links to songs we play please visit that um, but next week we'll be back hopefully with M and Scheherazade who we miss greatly today yes 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 um, but up next is Lost in Science and tomorrow you can join us for Friday Breakfast with, with Green Left yeah, it'll be a good breakfast at that.
Thank you so much, Apech, for this morning. And a good day. Thank you. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.